0: Lord, we're so grateful, such a joy to gather as the people of God to, to hear your word proclaimed. Lord, in particular, this morning, we pray that you would use Hebrews 11, that we would see this, these examples of faith, and we would be able to apply them to our lives, that we would recognize that, that as we walk through this world, there's going to be good times, and there's going to be hard times, and that you're faithful in the midst of all of it, so that we should be those, must be those, who are continually looking to the Lord Jesus, delighting ourselves in the reality that He has died for our sins, that He rose again on the third day, that we are looking forward to a future resurrection and a better city. So, Lord, I pray that You would use Your Word in a mighty way. May the Spirit of God use the Word of God to impact the people of God. For our good and for Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar surrounded Jerusalem and utterly destroyed the city, including burning the temple to the ground. But before he did, he took the vessels from the temple and he took the sons from the city and he exiled them all to Babylon, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who proved to be exceptionally wise, found favor in the eyes of the king and quickly became Nebuchadnezzar's personal Advisors. Right up until Nebuchadnezzar decided to build a golden statue of himself and commanded everyone to bow down and worship it. And to disobey that command meant you were thrown into the fiery furnace. Now the issue, of course, was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshiped Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. So they refused to bow down to false idols, which meant... They were immediately brought before the king to face their horrible fate. Now, I tell you this story because their comments to the king and their perspective on what might happen are so helpful as we think about Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, and our own lives in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation in which we're called and commanded to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of God. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, and I quote Daniel 3:16, "O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. For the God whom we serve is more than able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us, O King. But if not, may it be known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have made. And you know the rest of the story because Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely furious and heated the furnace to be seven times hotter than usual. In fact, the soldiers who cast Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the flames were incinerated immediately just from the heat. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were untouched, unscathed, unaffected. And emerged without a hair on their heads being singed or even the smell of smoke on their clothes. So needless to say, an absolutely glorious deliverance. But here's the point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to trust God. Either way, whether he saved them or not. Delivered them out of the fiery trial or allowed them to be Burned up. Either way, they were going to trust God, stand firm, and hold fast to their confession by looking forward to the hope of a better resurrection and the promise of a better city in which righteousness will one day reign. Which is exactly what we need to hear this morning. Because true faith in Christ trusts God in both the triumphs and the tragedies. So if God ordains victory... Faith rejoices in God's goodness, but if God brings trials, then faith clings to the promises of God, knowing that there is a better life yet to come. There is a better resurrection. There is a better city. So no matter how God sovereignly allows our lives to get played out, good health and long life or persecution and pain, difficulty and death, either way, we're going to trust him and we're going to persevere looking forward to the day when Christ returns so if you would go ahead and open your bibles with me to hebrews chapter 11 hebrews chapter 11 page 1007 if you're using one of the bibles in the chairs in front of you I encourage you to have bible open outline right in front of you the title of my sermon this morning is a better resurrection as you're turning, let me remind you that Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are struggling they're having a hard time because they know that there is persecution coming. And so they're being tempted to abandon their faith in Christ and turn back to an Old Testament sacrificial system. And in light of that, the author is pleading with them to hold fast to their confession. When we hit... Hebrews 11, he's encouraging them, right? So he provides example after example of faithful men and women from throughout the Old Testament who have counted the cost, weighed and measured, believed in Jesus, and persevered in their faith. So he's encouraging these dear Christians to do the same. If that is the backdrop, follow along as I read verses 23 to 31. The author says, By faith Moses, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The first thing I want you to notice are the words by faith and how they're declared seven times in these nine short verses. I've tried to highlight that on your outline with the first four related to Moses, so faith in Moses, and the second three related to Israel. So, faith in Israel. But the point is, faith looks like something. Specifically, faith trusts God even in the midst of present danger. So, faith believes that God exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So, holding fast to the reward of future glory, even while you're being opposed, condemned, and threatened. Even by the king of Egypt, Pharaoh himself. Because that's what happened in number one, Moses' preservation, Moses' parents' faith was evident and obvious in the midst of the horrific act of Pharaoh killing all the baby boys in Goshen. Because when Moses was born, Israel was growing at such a rate, really the fulfillment of God's promise, right, to make them a great nation, but they were growing at such a rate that Pharaoh commanded, cast all the baby boys into the Nile River. But verse 23 says his parents saw that Moses was beautiful. Now, don't all parents think their babies are beautiful? Well, of course they do. But the author is actually referencing Moses being beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. So belonging to God's people and even has a reference to being destined for God's city. But whatever they saw, they saw it through eyes of faith. And it had everything to do with the fact that Moses was God's deliverer. So what did they do? Verse 23 tells us, they were not afraid to oppose the king's edict. Now just pause and think about that for a moment. And how helpful that would have been to the original audience. Who are being persecuted, but but who are they being persecuted by? the emperor of Rome, so the king. So this example encourages them to do what? To not be afraid of the king, but to trust God, even in the midst of danger, like ruling and reigning authorities who have their minds set on death. So he's saying, have faith like Moses' parents who trusted God, didn't fear the king, and weren't afraid to oppose him. Because God delivers. That's Moses' preservation. Then the next three by-faith examples have everything to do with the entirety of Moses' life. From adulthood all the way up to the exodus. So his identification, separation, and salvation. But it starts in verse 24. Look at verse 24. That by faith Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, it's really helpful for you to know that the son of Pharaoh's daughter is actually an official title, like the Duke of York or the Duchess of Sussex. So to be given the title, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, would have meant immense power, prestige, and wealth. In fact, any desire Moses could have conceived of or asked for would have been taken care of immediately because he was sitting in this position of privilege. I mean, just think about that. Consider the reality of royalty, money, wealth, status, having anything and everything that you could ever hope for or imagine, and being waited on by people whose job it was to take care of your every need. So you have access to whatever you want whenever you want it. I mean, it's hard to even imagine what that must have looked like. He has all that he could ever want. And yet, it says, by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with God's people than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Specifically, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And that faith, Moses' faith, looked like something. Verse 27 says, Moses left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, God himself. And by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Moses' faith was not passive, but instead he made the active decision to not identify himself with Egypt, Pharaoh, or the life of pleasure and ease. So he weighed and he measured, and he considered the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the joys of Egypt, the luxury of wealth, the comfort of money, and the delight of physical pleasure. You have to understand, he knew exactly what he was giving up. But he counted the cost and he decided all these things are temporary and fleeting and not worthy to be compared with the reward of future glory. So he decided He weighed and he measured, and he decided Jesus is better. He is the great reward. So he rejected the riches of Egypt, and he chose. What did he choose exactly? He chose the reproach of Christ, which makes the example unbelievably relevant to the original audience. Because he's calling them, right, the original audience, the author is calling the original audience to suffer for Christ's sake. So he wants them to be like Moses because he understands. Moses understands the temptation of comfort and ease. He knows the pleasures of sin, but he also knows they're temporary and fleeting. So far better to look forward to being in Christ's presence where there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I mean, just weigh and measure and think, right? These pleasures are fleeting. They go away. This fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Moses counted the cost, weighed and measured, chose Christ and walked away. Now what's incredible here? Is that Moses sounds like a total rock star, doesn't he? Who never wavered in his faith or struggled in any way, which is not true. Because after he defended an Israelite and killed an Egyptian, he ran away to Midian. Why did he run to Midian? Because he was afraid, he was afraid of the king. And then when God called him as the deliverer, Exodus 3 and Exodus 4, he argued. Do you remember this? He argued at length with God about how he was unqualified for the job. Didn't know how to speak. Couldn't say things very well. Was worried that people would even believe him. So how do you reconcile that with not being afraid of the king? Well, I think the author's summarizing his life as a whole. He's not zooming in on the individual failures and faults. He's thinking about his life as a whole. And he's saying these qualities were his and they were increasing over the course of his life. 2 Peter 1. So it's not about perfection, is it? It's about persevering in the faith. And in the end, Moses was unwavering in his faith in Christ. Even in the midst of the present danger of Pharaoh's wrath and judgment, he stood there and he declared by faith, let my people go. And then he trusted God. And he commanded Israel to put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. And he watched God save his people from judgment and enslavement and deliver them out of Egypt. Now what's the take-home message for us? Well, in my mind, it, our current danger is not the threat of persecution or the certainty of death, but instead our, our temptation, right, is the fleeting pleasures of sin. I mean, we have absolutely everything we want at the click of a button or the swipe of a card, right? Right? And then we make buttons so we don't have to click too many buttons in a row, right? When we order something, we want to just click it and buy it, and it comes, right? Whether it's shoes or a nice outfit or latest technology or even a vacation, you just click the button. All we have to do is order it, and it's ours. And most of the time, it arrives the next day for free shipping, often the night before. You order it at 2 o'clock and it shows up at 8 p.m. on your doorstep. The guy seems like all his job is is to deliver your particular package. It's incredible. And yet, do you realize Americans currently have $986 billion in credit card debt? How would you summarize that? Certainly one way could be the fleeting pleasures of sin. And, of course, the other threat we face is being consumed by a life of comfort and ease in contrast to embracing the reproach of Christ. That's why Moses' faith is such a challenge to us, because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Just think about that. He compared in contrast and he said the reproach of Christ is greater wealth to me than all the treasures of Egypt. Why is that true? Because he was looking forward to the reward, which is Jesus himself. So here's the threat for us. That we just slowly walk away from Christ. Because the cost is too high. The reproach is too great. And I think in particular, the world is too appealing. We weigh and we measure, and we're like, this is great and good for a season. And then we're drawn away to all that the world has to offer. See, we need to be challenged this morning. And we need to ask ourselves, Do we consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of this life? In other words, is Jesus really enough for us this morning? And you need to be honest in your own heart is Jesus better than all of this? And if he's not, then I appeal to you to repent of your sin to believe in Jesus and to joyfully embrace the reproach of Christ because he's the greatest treasure of your soul. So make sure that you're holding fast to him and not being distracted by other things, being appealed by the things of this world. Jesus is better than anything this life could ever offer. That's faith in Moses. Now let's consider faith in Israel. Verse 29, the author says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now what's consistent with all three of these stories? Well, it's the fact that the people exercised great faith in the midst of present danger. And the dangers were real and the dangers were terrifying. I mean, do you remember the exodus? Because right after the Passover lamb and the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son, right? Israel was delivered from judgment and slavery. But then Pharaoh changes his mind. And the Egyptians chased them all the way down to the Red Sea. And the truth is the people were terrified for their lives. Rightfully so. Here comes the entire Egyptian army coming after us. And yet God provides. Split the Red Sea enabled them to walk across on dry ground. And not only that, but then destroyed the entire Egyptian army who tried to do the same. But it still took faith for Israel to trust God. So they had to believe that God would rescue them, that God would fight for them, that God would deliver them, which he did. And then immediately after that story, the author transitions from crossing the Red Sea to conquering the city of Jericho. Now, if you remember this story, this has got to be the single most ridiculous battle strategy in the history of the world which is why it requires faith to accomplish it. Because God commanded the people to march around the city for six days. And then on the seventh day, they marched around seven more times. So seven times on the seventh day. And then God commanded them to shout as loud as they possibly can at the blast of the trumpets. And what happened? Verse 30 tells us, the walls came a-tumbling down. Now, just put your feet in their shoes, though, for a moment. Because God had never done that before. He had never conquered a city by by marching around it and shouting them and blasting the trumpets. Here's the command. March around the city. Shout and blast the trumpets. Okay. And what's going to happen? We're going to conquer the city. You see, they had to believe that God is real and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him and trust him and obey his commands, even when it doesn't make any sense to them. So it's faith, real faith, believing, obeying in the midst of present danger, which shows God to be great and glorious, faithful and true and a miraculous deliverer of his people. But here's a question at this point in Hebrews 11. Does God only deliver the nation of Israel? No. God is happy to save anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus. For example, Rahab the prostitute. Now, how would you like your greatest sin attached to your name your entire life. We can just use the connection cards. You can pick one sin and just write it down, and then that's what we'll start calling you here at the church, right? (laughs) Paul the Proud. Here comes Lucy the Lazy. Hey, there's Gail the Gossip. How would you like that? It was never forgotten that Rahab was a prostitute. Yet she's listed here in the hall of faith because she's a prostitute who was delivered from her wicked ways when she trusted in Christ and trusted God even in the midst of danger and was willing to hide the spies from Israel, so protecting the people of God so that this ragtag army outside her window <laughs> could march around the city seven times blow their horns and de- destroy the mighty city of Jericho. I'm just trying to help you understand that took incredible faith because Rahab the prostitute is a woman who left her entire lifestyle, her entire friend group behind described by the way in verse 31 as those who were disobedient so that Trusting in Christ, she might be delivered and not destroyed. You see, that's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? That salvation is available to anyone and everyone who is willing to leave their old lifestyle behind and trust the promises of God. I mean, that's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 10, that whoever loves father, mother, sister, or brother more than me, it's not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds their life, holds on to it, clings to it, will not let go of it, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel will find it for a short time. No, for all eternity. And when Jesus calls, he doesn't guarantee the details, does he? He doesn't say that all will be easy or smooth or that all of your problems will just go away. But what he does guarantee is life, eternal life and future glory. So he makes promises, made them to Rahab and she believed. But the question here this morning is not about Rahab, it's about you. Are you believing? Are you trusting? Are you resting? Is your faith fully and finally in Jesus? Are you trusting in his finished work on the cross alone for your salvation? That was true of Rahab the prostitute, which proves that it doesn't matter what your background looks like. No one has gone too far or is too far gone for the gospel. Then you don't have to clean yourself up in order to come to Christ. You just need to repent of your former lifestyle. Walk away from it. Believe in Jesus and look forward to future glory. You see, faith trusts God, even in the midst of danger. So faith always comes first and then deliverance. So there's the lesson to the current audience because they weren't part of the inner circle of society. Instead, they were exposed and afflicted and had their property plundered with even worse things yet to come. But either way, the author is calling them to trust God, regardless of the outcome, knowing that he will ultimately deliver them and bring them home to glory. Now, I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what trials and tribulations you face. I don't know what your present danger is. But what I do know is that God is faithful to deliver, ultimately to take you home to future glory. And that's where our faith needs to be, in Christ. Number one, faith in present danger. Number two, faith and future glory. Allow me to read verses 32 to 38. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Of the earth. Now, two things stand out to me as I read these verses. The first is the incredible victories that some of these dear believers have won. I mean, conquering kingdoms, enforcing justice, stopping the mouths of lions, quenching the power of fame, and escaping the edge of the swords. That's an incredible list of things. Second thing that stands out to me is the horrible persecution that other believers have endured. Mockings and floggings, chains and imprisonments, being stoned, sawn in two, and running around in animal skins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. That's a terrible list. So you have an incredible list next to a terrible list. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we have to trust in God in both the triumphs and in the tragedies. So if God ordains victory, faith rejoices in his goodness. But if he brings torture and death, then faith clings to the promises of God and looks forward to a better resurrection and a better eternal heavenly city. So as we jump into A, faith and victory, one of the things that you have got to notice and is fascinating about this list is the obvious sins that are associated with the people in this list. If you know your Old Testament at all, then you know that Gideon constantly asked for signs in order to trust God, Judges chapter 6. Barak was terrified to go to battle, so he had Deborah go in his place, Judges 4. Samson married a Philistine, slept with a prostitute, and made the decision to confide in her, which got him killed. Judges 16, Jephthah vowed to sacrifice his own daughter, Judges 11, David committed adultery, slept with Bathsheba, and murdered her husband Uriah, 2 Samuel 11, and Samuel raised sons who perverted justice, and yet he made the decision to make them judges over Israel, 1 Samuel 8. What does that tell you when you look at this list? It tells you that we are all just sinners saved by grace because these same people accomplished the great victories listed in verses 33 and 34. So they're clearly flawed victors. And what's amazing is that their sins are not listed, not a single sin. Not a single failure or fault is highlighted anywhere here. What is the only thing that is highlighted? Not their faults and their failures, but their faith, which solidifies it's not about perfection. It's about perseverance in the faith. In fact, their sinfulness only highlights all the more that the victories were God's victories. That's number two, the divine victories, because the author's arguing that faith in God accomplished all these incredible things, like conquering kingdoms. Now, you can't help but think about David and Goliath or Samson and the Philistines, but how about Gideon? Do you remember Gideon? By God's command, Gideon reduced his army from 22,000 down to 300. How did God command him to do that? By the most unlikely of means. How the men drank their water out of the stream. Whether they lapped it up or they scooped it up. That's how he reduced it. And he brought it all the way down to 300 men. And yet the 300 men defeated the entire Midian army. Whose camels were without number. And soldiers were like the sand of the seashore. So, you're talking about tens of thousands of men at least who were well armed, well trained, and well equipped. And yet, Gideon trusted God to deliver, which he did. So, God whittled down his army to 300 on purpose just to prove that the victory was God's. That way, God gets all the glory, honor, and praise. Because through faith, we trust that he is the one who will conquer the enemy. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? That God secures the victory. And we, by faith, trust him to do it. And it's not just conquering kingdoms, but enforcing justice and obtaining promises, which every single one of these people in the hall of faith has done. They've obtained, they've trusted the promises of God. But just for fun, who in the world stopped the mouths of lions? You're like, I know that one. Daniel in the lion's den. Yeah, that's true. But did you know it's also Samson, David, and Benaiah? And how about the other one? Who quenched the flower of fire? Well, I told you that in the introduction, right? That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the whole point of each and every story is the same, isn't it? That God delights in delivering his people through extraordinary means. When our faith is in him to do it because that always results in the people's greatest good and God's greatest glory. And the short list given here proves it, that God can deliver the faithful anytime that he wants to and from any enemy. Moses from Pharaoh, Rahab from Jericho, Gideon from the Midianites, or even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery God can, if he chooses, deliver from anything. And the same is true for you this morning. God can deliver you from anything, if he chooses. Do you believe that? God can deliver you from anything which is why we don't hesitate to pray for miracles because God can he can if he chooses but the same is also true isn't it that God sometimes chooses not to And we need to trust him either way. Rest. Know that he is faithful. Pray for the miraculous. And yet, rest in whatever he decides to do. Including verse 35 Women received back their dead by resurrection. And then there's this immediate transition to the opposite, right? Which is equally true that God can, if he chooses, not deliver you. Because the author says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that, look at this, they might rise again to a better life. Look at that verse very closely. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. They could have been released. We're going to let you out. You can go free. You don't have to. And they said, no, we'll take the torture because they were looking forward to a better life. See, here's how we know it's always by faith that God does his work because faith is always looking forward. So here's the question. Why in the world would anyone ever endure such horrible persecution, death, or deprivation? How, how in the world should we deal with the difficulties of this life? Verse 35 tells us so that you might rise again to a better life. I absolutely love that phrase. In fact, it's why I titled my sermon, A Better Resurrection, because both Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead, right? That's in the Old Testament. And you know John chapter 11, that Jesus raised Lazarus. But let me ask you this question. What happened to those people after they were raised from the dead? That's right. They died again, right? Lazarus died again, right? He's raised to life. John chapter 11, only to die again. That means he didn't just die once. He had to die twice. I'm just telling you, I, I don't want to be raised again. <laughs> like, I'm okay. I just want to die once. Like, I don't, I don't want to go through death twice. Like, once is good. Thank you very much, Lord. No, no, no request here. Don't pray for the miraculous when I die. Please don't do that, right? Verse 35 says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept being released because they had such clarity, such conviction, such confidence and certainty, trusting God's promises and walking by faith that they would indeed rise again to a better eternal life. So be clear. They're not given a glorious victory, but instead they suffer persecution, death, deprivation. But that doesn't mean that God's not in it. In fact, I would argue God's in it all the same because faith empowers both. That's why I listed them as faith and victory, faith and persecution. Because the faith that empowers a person to victory, verse 34, being made strong out of weakness to win the war, is the same faith that empowers a person to endure persecution, death, and deprivation. Can you even imagine anything worse than the list that we're given here. Mockings and floggings, chains and imprisonment, being stoned, sawn in two, and running around in animal skins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. That's a horrible list. And you might be asking, who endured all these things? Well, that's the glory of it. Because certainly some can be listed. For example, many Old Testament prophets were mocked, flogged, and imprisoned. Others were tortured, especially during the Maccabean persecution. Which, by the way, the immediate audience would have known all about. The person sawn two is probably Isaiah. But the truth is, there's tons of unknown faithful Christians who are persecuted all the time for their unwavering faith in Christ, which is tremendously encouraging because that's who this letter is written to, a small group of unknown faithful Christians. And the list is almost prophetic, especially if you know anything about Emperor Nero. Verse 37 says, they went around in animal skins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Well, that's exactly what Nero's going to do to these faithful Christians in Rome. He's going to throw skins on their backs and tell them to run until they're chased down by wild animals who devour them. Then he's going to blame who's ever left for a city fire that he started so that they get kicked out of their homes, left for dead, and are destitute. And anybody else who's left it, he's going to mistreat them by lighting them on fire and using them as human torches for his dinner parties. But you know the best part? Is whether they're known or unknown, named or unnamed, victorious or persecuted, whatever they've endured in this life, they've proven by their faith in Christ that they are people of whom the world is not worthy. Which means this world is not their home. And this world is not worthy to have them as its sons and its daughters. So then here's the question, for what world are they worthy? That's right, the next. I want you to remember the story I told last week about Henry Morrison, the faithful missionary to Africa for 40 years, how on his trip home to New York City, he saw the large crowds forming on the dock and assumed that it was all for him and his wife. Really, it was for Teddy Roosevelt, who was also on the ship, returning home from a hunting trip. So when Henry and his wife got off the boat, there were no flags waving, no bands playing, no people cheering. There was no celebration at all. Why is that? Because Henry Morrison and his wife were people of whom this world is not Worthy. That's why they weren't appreciated, celebrated, honored, or revered. And that's what the Lord clarified to Henry in such a wonderful way. Henry said, It was as if the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and said, But Henry, you're not yet home. Don't you see? That's the glory of this entire passage. That when we walk by faith, believing that God exists and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him, then we're always looking forward to that future glory, that that better resurrection, that heavenly city, that place where we are worthy. And we will hear the Lord say to us, I'm the God of Henry Morrison. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I'm the God of all of these people in the Hall of Faith. I'm the God of Steve Thiel, and I'm the God of... Of you. That's what you will hear. Because you're worthy. Of that future glory. Not worthy in and of yourself. But worthy. Because your faith. Is in. Christ. And the glory of that day. Is that we're going to all be there. Together. People of whom the world was never worthy. Let's see faith and perfection. Verse 39 tells us that. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something, something better for us, for all of us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect perfect. So he's not talking about when you die and get to be in the presence of the Lord, right? Absent from the body is present with the Lord. And that is far better. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when Christ returns at the end of the age when Jesus's enemies will be made a footstool for his feet and all things will be made right And all those who believed in him will be raised to a better resurrection and will experience the better city. So an eternal kingdom that is unshakable because its architect and builder is God. And all of God's people are going to be there. Talk about a glorious celebration. People from all the way back in Genesis Abel and Enoch and Noah, Moses, Rahab, and Gideon, all the way forward to the last people who put their faith in Christ, will all join together in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise that he's talking about. So yes, they have not yet received it, but they will. And we will as well, if our faith is in the Lord Jesus. So what do we do with all of this? Meaning, how do we apply these glorious truths and all of these examples to our lives this morning? Well, my suggestion is that we live just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were willing to trust God, whether he saved them or not whether he delivered them out of the fiery trial or he allowed them to be burned up. Either way, they trusted God, stood firm, and held fast to their confession. How did they do that? By looking forward to the hope of a better resurrection and a better city. That needs to be true of us this morning. See, true faith trusts God both in the triumphs and in the tragedies. True faith in Christ trusts God, not just in the good days when everything is going the way you want it to go, but in the bad days, when nothing is going the way you want it to go. And when those bad days become bad weeks, become bad months, become bad years. You see, it's easy to trust God in the good days. But it's essential we trust God in the hard days. And we cling to His promises knowing that He has promised a better life yet to come. That He has promised a better life resurrection, that he has promised a better city. How do you make it through the hard days? How do you make it through the valleys? Well, you know that you're climbing the mountain on the other side. We don't stay in the valley, do we? He will never leave us nor forsake us in the valley. So even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. By the way, notice that it's a shadow of death. The shadow cannot hurt you. The shadow of a dog cannot bite you. The shadow of a knife cannot cut you. And the shadow of death cannot kill you even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. We trust the promises of God. And how does Psalm 23 end? So that we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beloved, God has made promises, and he's faithful to keep those promises There is a better life yet to come. There is a better resurrection. And there's a better city. So I appeal to you, do not cling to this world. You're not worthy of this world. You're worthy of the next world. So make sure your eyes are fixed on Jesus. You're looking forward and you're longing for his return because he promises he will make all things right. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning. Lord, if there's any who are here this morning who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I pray that you would not give them a false assurance of these things. Lord, Hebrews 11 is so clear that it's by faith that we receive the promises of God. So I pray for my friends here this morning who are not yet trusting in Christ, that you would be doing a good work. Lord, I pray that you would move in both their mind and in their heart. They, they would recognize that, that all that is in this world is fleeting and will pass away. But the one thing that it will endure to the end is their faith in the Lord Jesus that they will be with him, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I pray for any who don't know you to count the cost and to believe in Jesus. And for the beloved Lord, I pray that we would trust you in the good days and the hard days, that we would rest in your promises, that we would know them. We would know that you've given us promises We do not need to hold on to this world because you've promised a better world. You promised a better resurrection, a better life, and a better city. So, Lord, as we walk through the valley and we endure the difficulties, Lord, I pray that we would not have eyes that are staring at our belly button or consumed by the difficulty, but eyes that would be fixed on the Lord Jesus, looking forward and longing for his return. Lord, we're asking that you would be doing that good work in each of our hearts and minds for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.